Hello, everybody. Welcome to Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy, and we're here with Jeremy of Censusure. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So, why do you tell everybody what Censusure is? Yeah, so Censusure is a company that's developing technology for seniors, and the first product we're working on is called the Smart Patch. It's essentially a patch that goes on the outside of any adult diaper, or the industry-appropriate term is an adult incontinence product, mm -hmm. and is able to tell from the outside of the diaper whether the inside of the diaper is wet, and then wirelessly sends that information to caregivers. And why does that matter? Yeah, so when you go into a nursing home, you'll find that 80% of people, 80% um, of the seniors living in these homes have um, what's called urinary incontinence, which is essentially involuntary urination. So 80% of people are wearing um, these adult incontinence products. And nurses are going room to room checking people. Are they wet? Are they wet? Are they wet? Mm -hmm. And there's two problems with that. They're either checking too frequently, which means they're wasting their own time, or they're not checking frequently enough, which means that the senior is sitting there for a prolonged period of time in a wet brief. Mm -hmm. And so we essentially provide caregivers with the information to know when the brief is wet to either save them time or increase the quality of life of the resident. And, you know, I, I have not worn one of these, so I don't like, is it, is it, is it more than just an irritation for the senior if they've been left in it too long? Yeah, so I mean, we personally, um, all the co-founding team have worn briefs ourselves and peed in them yes. um, numerous times, and it's certainly not not comfortable, right? Yes. And yes. you know, if you if you sit in a if you sit in a wet brief for a prolonged period of time, you'll start to develop skin breakdown, pressure ulcers. Right. So I really don't think it's a positive experience for the seniors. Mm -hmm. um, when we did a pilot study in Edmonton, Alberta, one of the seniors described the experience as sitting in sort of like vinegar for for a prolonged period of time. That's cool. Okay, so so let's take a quick step back and uh, oh, actually one one before we do that. So this, there's a sensor on the outside of the diaper. It's a it's like a wearable thing, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And so you've developed the sensor, the technology, Correct. and you've developed the software that it connects to to notify the nurse. Exactly. Yeah. So the sensor actually uses um, these things called capacitive sensors, mm -hmm. and they're the same sensors that are in the touchscreen of your iPhone mm -hmm. to be able to detect whether your finger is present, and we use the same technology to detect whether there's moisture present in the brief from, from the outside. And you, there's, uh, even if you urinate once, there's enough liquid to know from the thing can detect that? or Yeah, so we're still on an early prototype stage. So mm -hmm. right now we can detect generally urination events that are greater than 100 milliliters. I see. Um, anything lower than that is very difficult for us to detect. Um, but another thing we found with, that was important with developing this technology was to be able to actually distinguish between different volumes of urine. Okay. So a nurse isn't going to necessarily run to a senior's room if there's 100 mils of urine in the brief. But mm. if there's 800 mils of urine in the brief, then the nurse is much more incentivized to go and change that person much more promptly. Yes. And so we don't just tell caregivers the brief is wet or the brief isn't wet. We try and give them an indication of actually how wet the brief is. I see. Yeah. So if I'm a nurse, would I get like... Do I have an app on my phone and I get a push notification? Or like, how do I? It really depends on the infrastructure that's okay. present in the nursing home already. So you'll go to some fancy homes in the United States and all the nurses are walking around with iPads. Um, and so we leverage that technology to mm -hmm. send push notifications to the nurses. Mm -hmm. But if you go to some homes in Canada, they just started getting computers in their homes like a couple years ago, right? right? And so we try and use their call bell system, which is essentially like an overhead PA to deliver notifications to let them know a certain resident is an well. auditory, an auditory, an auditory thing. Or they also have these point of care systems in the hallway, sort of like touchscreen computers mm -hmm. placed at certain strategic locations across the hallway, and so we can deliver notifications to those as well. And does it need like, and do you need like a notification? Because I mean, people urinate all the time. Do you? 
Yeah. So yeah. one of the things we found with the with the pilot study that we did in Edmonton, Alberta, um, was that during that during that pilot study, we were actually sending text messages to, text messages to caregivers' phones. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that that's sort of inconvenient for a caregiver because they're not necessarily going to drop what they're doing right. and go respond to that notification. Right. And so I think the ideal interface is to just provide caregivers with an overview of all of the residents, which ones are wet and which ones are dry, and when they can check when it's convenient when it's convenient for them, mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of continuously sending them push notifications. Huh. So let, let, now now let's take a quick step back sure. <laughs> and talk about when you, uh, how you got here. So you, um, you, this is not your first startup. No. Do you want to talk about your first startup? Sure, yeah. So my first startup was called Lee Dynamo, mm -hmm. um, and it was inspired from my time at um, a translational genomics company in the UK. Mm -hmm. And so at this company, we were essentially selling products to professors doing biomedical research at universities. And one of the things I learned was spending some time in business development or sales was that people spent a lot of time generating leads. They would go to PubMed or Google Scholar. They would search for publications matching certain keywords that were relevant to their products. They would pull authors from those publications and then they would go and try and find their emails. Mm -hmm. So it's a very tedious process. My colleagues spent three to four hours a day trying to generate leads. And so the inspiration behind Lead Dynamo was to essentially automate the lead generation process mm -hmm. for the biopharmaceutical industry. And so I started that company with a developer out of San Diego and mm -hmm. ran it for about um, five or six months. Mm -hmm. um, left the UK and explored partnership opportunities in the U uh, or in Canada. Looked at potentially funding the opportunity, but what I ultimately figured out was that um, it wasn't really something that I wanted to spend, you know, three three years of my life building. So I guess two questions. One is like, first of all, why did you come back to Canada from the UK? So yep. Let's ask that one first. Sure. So to essentially reduce my burn rate, I could have just lived, lived with my parents in Canada. 50% less. The UK isn't a cheap place to live. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> uh, and then I guess the second question is, how do you know? So you had this idea, you saw a problem, you're like, I feel like I should attack this problem. And five months is not an insignificant amount of time. It's not a huge amount of time, but it's not nothing. Sure. How do you decide that this is not a thing? Yeah. So I think it was really about, it was, it was about looking at, you know, I think that the cost of my time to me right now is very, very important, just you know, being a 23-year-old guy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think spending three years of my life on something that I wasn't really passionate about um, was just really not something I wanted to do. The main motivation behind you know, starting Lead Dynamo was that I wanted to create financial freedom for myself so that I could go do something I was really passionate about. Yes. And I realized that just doing that alone um, was not a good enough inspiration to, to you, know, you know, like I said, spend So you're saying years. like... Uh, uh, doing something for a means to an end isn't sufficient. You need the end to be part of it. Exactly. Part of the means. <laughs> butchered in a terrible way. So, so you discovered this. So you had the idea. You kind of chase some leads down. You're trying to get money. And, and in the middle of it, you're like, eh, now that I'm into this, I'm just like, uh. Exactly. And then what do you just stop and then start looking around for something else? No, or? so I was, you know, I was continuing to push Lead Dynamo forward, but at the same time I started networking in Toronto with a lot of other entrepreneurs and people who are working on startups. I had lived in Toronto previously, mm -hmm. but at that point in my life, five years prior to that, I wanted to be a doctor. And so I developed a lot of connections in Toronto, um, in like the hospitals and the, in the university, but never really expanded those connections to you know, the startup environment or entre entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so I started connecting with entrepreneurs and as part of that, I watched the Next 36 Venture Day presentation. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the companies that presented there um, was, was Censorsure, the company I'm involved with now, mm -hmm. and ended up, you know, connecting connecting with Samir, who's the CEO, mm -hmm. um, and and working with them just sort of a little bit on a consulting type basis and then ended up joining joining the company. Cool, so how many, how many founders of the company are there? Three, so myself, 
um, Samir, who's the CEO and has a background in investment banking, mm -hmm. and then Tim, the CTO, who is just finishing up his degree at the University of Toronto in aerospace engineering. Cool. Right. Very different <laughs> direction. Absolutely. Uh, so I guess the first question is, they went through the next 36, because I think a lot of people don't realize this, but founders don't necessarily show up the day the idea is conceived, mm -hmm. and then they're there, like, you can come on as a co-founder, especially early on in the process, not the day the idea is conceived. Yep. So uh, they went through the next 36, which is an accelerator program in, here in Canada, and they came out the other end pitched for investment. How do you come onto a company as a founder after they've gone through some lifting, heavy lifting of the first kick at the can. Sure, yeah, so this is certainly a conversation that we had when I was when I was considering coming on board. Mm -hmm. And it was something that was important to me, you know, if I wanted to invest a certain amount of, uh, a, a very significant amount of time, mm -hmm. again, at, as a very important point in my life, to a, to a company, I wanted to feel that I was, you know, fully vested in the, in the company. Mm -hmm. And so it was something that was personally important to me. Mm -hmm. And when I joined the company, we had just, you know, we were just about to do this first pilot test in Edmonton, Alberta, with a prototype that looks nothing like the product we have now. Yes. Um, and so it was, there was still a lot of risk involved, and there were still a lot of unanswered questions. And so I think that, um, you know, four months really into the company, I think it's still appropriate to name people potentially a co-founder. Yeah, yeah. I think perhaps where we are now is, the cutoff point where and I'm not <laughs> right. sure we would name, name anybody else a co-founder. Right. Yeah. Are you, um, so w what were they asking for at the next 36? Were they asking for follow on, fun like funding to do a pilot kind of thing or what, you know, and then you're like, Hey, I'm a product guy. Like how did that? Yeah. So it was, they weren't really asking for anything. Right. Okay. So the next 36 did give some capital to census shirt. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they invested the first $85,000. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, at the end of the presentation, there was no pitch for, Oh, we need a CPO. Okay. Um, in fact, when I actually reached out to Samir, mm -hmm. they were sort of talking about, um, potentially bringing on somebody in a CPO type capacity, mm -hmm. but weren't actively looking. And I guess it was just convenient that, I asked him. I asked him for drinks. Wait, so it was just a coincidence that your skill set matched what they need, or like you say, you know, you need a product guy, or were you just talking? They're like, how did you know that that was a skill set that was missing? I think you know part of my reason, part of my reason for wanting to become involved with Censorsure was that I felt that my skill set could add value to the team. Mm -hmm. Samir's background is, like I said, in investment banking, and Tim is an engineer, and we're doing something in, in health, in health, right? And they didn't have anybody who had health experience or science experience, and right. so I thought I could add some value to the team and. That sort of cool. And so, when was this? Like time temporarily? Yeah. So that would have been back in October of 2014. Yes. Whew! Not that long ago. <laughs> time goes by. Time goes by quick. Though. Very Man, fast. It's been, yeah. So, so you guys had so, so you well actually before we go on, this is entrepreneurs in small rooms drinking coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy, and we're here with uh, Jimmy of Censorsure. Um, so then you join a CPO. Did you have the pilot already lined up? Yeah, so the pilot yeah. in Alberta was already lined up. And again, it was for a previous prototype um, than the one we have now. Yes. Um, the prototype we have now is a reusable patch that goes on the outside of the brief. The mm -hmm. one that we were pilot testing in Edmonton, Alberta was something that goes on the inside of the brief yes. and was actually disposable. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember you showed me at the before. Was that the one with the wires that kind of went into the... Exactly. Yeah. yeah, the wires that goes into the actually the inside of the brief and then has this like bulky clip-on like transmitter. Right. Yeah. So then you... So how did you do? You guys found a deal, somebody who's willing to try this because they found you found they found they had a need, and you're like, hey, we can solve solve that problem for you. So let's test together. Exactly. Yeah. We we I mean like then and now we've yeah. never had a problem finding people who want to test our thing. Okay. It's about their attitude and their their the way they think about sort of innovation and 
and introducing innovation into their home is which which is what's important to us and actually selecting of many people which which people we want to actually sort of pilot because Edmonton for those who don't know Canada <laughs> sure Edmonton is far far away from Toronto it I mean, is it's you know it's like halfway through going from New York to Iowa or further I don't know <laughs> uh, so why Edmonton why there Samir is a University of Alberta graduate and so had a lot of connections in, in that area got it and that's how that happened fair enough yeah so you went up there for how long did you do the test? We were there for, it was actually a very short test and it was actually like, I would call it more of a feasibility test as opposed to a pilot test, literally like four residents over two weeks. Got it. Yeah. Were you worried about electrocuting the? No. Yeah. The the, the um, voltage that's going through uh, the the sensor is like less than what a, like mini light bulb uses in a in like a flashlight. So got it. Yeah. So it would just hurt. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. So um, so you, you went there, I mean, this is pr pretty shortly after you joined, you went there? So I actually didn't go for the oh, initial, okay. yeah, and that was probably one of the first mistakes we made as a team was my not, my not going there. And it was because I literally joined like a few days before they left and they had already booked the flight tickets. Um, we hadn't closed the 300K seed round that came after. I see. Um, and, so, and so we were a little hesitant to spend the money in getting me up there. Is it, so just to the, the funding part, so you got some money from the next 36, that seed round came from follow-on funding after the... Yes, like a seed round from people who are interested from the next 36 presentation or friends and family kind of thing? Yeah, so the majority of the investors were angel investors that were actually in Alberta. Mm -hmm. um, John Ferguson, who's the chairman of Suncor, um, mm -hmm. was actually the lead investor for that no round. Um, and so, yeah, so we did the 300K round that we closed in November of 2014. Mm -hmm. And then we actually, just a couple of days ago, we were announced as the winner of the Tech Edmonton Venture Prize. And so we just cool. got another $100,000 in non-dilutive funding. So today Amazing. it's been 485. That's amazing. Yeah. That's that's okay. So you you did the pilot. You came back, and the mistake of you not being there was because you understood the space, and you could interpret the results. Or, or what I, what was the mistake for not going? I think so. There was a lot of lack of let's just say lack of control in those experiments. Is uh, uh, coming from like a scientific background, you like it. to have certain things controlled so that there's as little confounding variables um, as possible. And mm. so there wasn't a lot of control in those experiments. Right. And so the results that we got from that pilot study or feasibility study were sort of the utility to us was sort of limited as a result. But there were obvious, were there obvious ahas that came out of it? I think so. And so, I mean, obviously we've completely changed our product after that, right? We went yeah. from a disposable on the inside to a reusable on the outside of the incontinence product. Mm -hmm. And so that was essentially fueled by the fact that there was, there was two things. One was that we realized the disposable wasn't economic. The long-term care industry, particularly in Canada, is price sensitive. Mm -hmm. And to add an additional 10 cents to each of the briefs um, they use with seniors, which only costs like 40 cents at baseline, is yeah. just not something that makes sense to them. Huh. And They the, charge so much money though to their residents. Is there just a high cost structure or their just margins are? Yeah, uh, their margins are, are I mean, around 30 to 30 to 40%. I mm. think the reason the um, cost is so high to the residents. So in Canada, the way it works is the resident pays for the accommodation and the government funds the healthcare. Okay. Um, and I think part of the reason the accommodation is so expensive is just because of the infrastructure that needs to be in place, given mm. how much care is being provided to I the residents. So then, sorry, your second point that you learned aside from disposability being a cost factor is what? Yeah, it was the usability of having a two-component system where essentially mm -hmm. you had this disposable and then this reusable thing that had to be worn on the resident's belt to actually transmit the information from the from the sensor. 
And that just wasn't something that, that really made sense. For did the residents care or notice? They did. So the most prevalent condition in nursing homes is urinary incontinence, right? Mm -hmm. 80% of people have urinary incontinence. The second most prevalent condition is dementia. And if you put a bulky thing on a, on a resident with dementia, they interpret that thing as being foreign and they want to rip it off, right? And I so see. that's obviously a problem. Yes. Yeah. So, so that, that caused you to come back and try to re-engineer the actual physical product? Exactly. Happened? Yeah. And you know, the thing I've noticed about like hardware startups are cool again, but they're really hard because it's one thing to make a piece of software that you can just throw away and reuse. Hardware, you have to, prototyping is actually the thing that's been made easier, 3D printers and Arduinos and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But then actually producing a thing, that's really hard. Absolutely. More so than software, no? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, there's this whole movement right now of the lean, the lean startup, right? Yeah. And so we're all very much believers in this, in this sort of, I guess you could say, culture or philosophy. Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult to apply that to a hardware, a hardware startup, right? Yeah. Where each iteration of your product costs you between thirty and fifty thousand dollars. Right. Um, and so, and so, yeah, it, it is tough. So you got the feedback. Okay, it needs to be different. Then what? How did you know what to build? Like, I'm, I'm, the, unfortunately, you can't see it for those listening. But there's the actual product here. It sort of looks like an insole in your shoe. Exactly. How I, I sort of look at it. And a lot of people at the conference came up to me and asked if that's what we were presenting. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, well, oh, it's eight thousand dollars. You want it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do we know how to go from the disposable to the reusable? Was yeah. Like, how did you design your product? Did you have? Yeah. Yeah. So part of the part of the reason we're moving down to Maryland in, in four days um, is to sort of um, essentially improve the design of the current prototype that's sitting here on this table. Mm -hmm. And so this is really just something we just mocked up. We hired an industrial designer and paid them a few thousand dollars and asked them to put together something for us. Okay. And then so the so this is just like you know a design prototype. We're mm -hmm. gonna we're gonna continue to iterate on it. But the thing you're testing, and we'll get to where you're going in a second, but sure. the thing you're testing is um, that will actually sense yes. properly. Yep. So it has all the electronics and stuff built into it. Correct. So yep. the, the, you've had to re-engineer the product physically. It'll have a container that looks nicer, but it, it, to, to actually do the next thing. So the next pilot will actually have the newer technology that... Exactly. Using these capacitive sensors, which I spoke about, yes. as opposed to just like a very simple mechanism where you have two wires, and if you put some liquid on top of the wires, you reduce the resistance between them. Right. Using capacitive sensors is a much more complicated mechanism. So how do you make those? Do you just find a supplier? Like how do you... Sure. So because the first, the pilot, we're doing two pilots in Maryland. Mm -hmm. um, one is going to involve around 10, 10 seniors and the next one's going to involve around 30 seniors. Mm -hmm. And so that's low enough volume that we can just um, manufacture them in-house. Mm -hmm. And so we have an industrial designer who's cutting the material for us. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're just literally like creating an in-house assembly line, if you will. Cool. To, to put them together with sort of pseudo off-the-shelf components and just exactly yeah cool yeah um, so okay so you you learn from the pilot you built a new you're building a new product and then in in you've come back in the meantime has anything else changed with like did you learn anything else or are you just like okay we're gonna build a new pilot like what you were kind of alluding to before is you're moving to Maryland mm -hmm. from Toronto yeah why <laughs> Yeah, so the, the biggest thing was, the biggest thing that changed following the Edmonton-based um, pilot mm -hmm. was that we started looking at the Canadian market, right? Mm -hmm. And we started looking at the willingness to pay of customers, i.e. nursing homes, in the Canadian market. And mm -hmm. what we found was that the willingness to pay and the incentives around paying for something like, like this innovation were not that great, right? When we asked the majority of homes, how would you think about paying for this? Well, they would say, how much money is it going to save me? And we'll base it off of that, right? I and see. so we went down to the United States and did this crazy 7,000 kilometer road trip, literally went to went through the majority of the states in the eastern United States, met with a ton of care homes there, 
um, and ask them the same question. How do you think about willingness to pay? Hmm. And while how much money it would save them was something that was important, um, the biggest thing for them was just increasing quality of care, right? Interesting. And, and that's a much better sort of way for us to for us to sell this, and much easier data for us to generate mm. um, than than sort of providing that similar data to the to the Canadian market. But couldn't the Canadian market, um, if if reduction of nurse wasted time is a thing, yep. could you not have quantified it that way to them? Yeah, so the thing with the Canadian market's interpretation of that particular value proposition yes. is they say, well, nursing time is a fixed cost, right? I'm not going to yes. hire a fire nurse because you're able to save them like an hour a day. Got it. And so as much as it saves them time and increases organizational slack, mm -hmm. which is then correlated with increased quality of care, it's the same argument again that they don't really care about quality of care, whereas the U.S. does, and that's why we wanted to move down there. And is this way. true for private and public? It is homes, no matter where you go. Yeah. So I think I think um, yeah yeah. That's interesting. So um, do you think it was a good use of time to drive up and down the states rather than send out surveys or? Absolutely. I don't think why. You, yeah, I don't think you can beat just like that face to face interaction with customers. One from like a relate developing relationship standpoint, we now have very strong relationships with a number of very large providers of care homes in the United States which will probably be future customers of ours. Mm -hmm. And then just to be able to physically show them the product. I mean, we're a hardware startup, we're not a software startup. Mm -hmm. So just to be able to physically show them the product, get them to touch it, get, give them, get them to give us their feedback of the physical thing, I think is very, very valuable information. Did you learn anything while doing that too, yourselves? Yeah, so certainly. So, I mean, there were a number of concerns that were brought up with the current, with the current prototype. Mm -hmm. And the two biggest ones were what happens if the caregiver loses it, right? Because stuff is lost all the time in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And the second one was, how do you clean it, right? Because it's obviously mm -hmm. in a sensitive area where it might get soiled. Mm -hmm. um, and so those were things that were sort of in the back of our mind, but we didn't really assign that much value to to those particular um, problems. Mm -hmm. And so now we're, we're focusing on them much more readily. Cool. So uh, again, for those just tuning in, this is Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy, and we're here with Jeremy of Censusure. So when we last left our heroes, you were about to <laughs> move down to Virginia. Now, Virginia, particularly why? Yeah, so it's actually, so Maryland. Maryland, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so like I said, so we went on this crazy 7,000 kilometer road trip. We yeah. met with like 75 people. Yeah. And from those 75 people, we selected this one person, mm -hmm. um, or this one group rather, um, for a few reasons. One, because of their philosophy on, you know, return on investment for something like this, right? Um, you know, their primary focus was increasing quality of care for their residents, right? They're extremely forward, a forward thinking group. Mm -hmm. A lot of nursing home chains talk about adopting innovation and they hire innovation teams and start to put together frameworks for adopting innovation. But the folks we're working with in Maryland are actually doing it. Mm -hmm. They've got a number of pretty cool innovations like these like bionic legs and these mm -hmm. like crazy like um, tracking systems for residents already implemented. And so we see them as, you know, a really great partner. And the final thing was that they're actually the showcase site for our competitor's product, which I won't name. Mm -hmm. um, so that obviously adds a lot of value to the process as well. That's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a direct competition directly in the, yeah. Literally, uh, like they're doing a pilot at one site and we're doing a pilot at the other site. So I don't think it gets much more interesting. direct than that. You need security around your product. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Guards placed around. Yeah. So how do you like, uh, are you running the risk then of you, if, if that is a, I mean, Generally, healthcare tends to be not, they don't tend to be early adopters of technology. They tend to be laggards a little bit. Once something's been proven, they tend to often, especially in Canada, wait a little bit. So do you find that, are you worried that you'll you'll prove out your, your value prop with these guys? You mean like, look, it really works. But then all the other 
homes will be like, yeah, it's great, but you know, it's innovation. Yeah, I think that the proportion of early adopter customers for this sort of technology in the United States is enough for us to be able to start to generate some revenue, start to make some improvements to the technology. Hmm. And at that point, I think we'll have enough data to support going and and sort of, I guess, selling into some of these much larger, much larger groups. Right. And, you know, like some of these groups, like Brookdale, for example, they're the largest in the United States. They have 110,000 seniors living in their communities mm -hmm. and 65, six, sorry, 650 different different communities or homes. Wow. Um, and so, I mean, if we can land one of those customers, then that's, uh, that, that's could, that can make our business thing. on its own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so how, so that brings us to your next step. So you're, you're you're moving down there. You're going to run a, a bigger pilot. Is that what you're characterizing it as, or a test? Or yeah. So what we're calling it is a joint product development initiative. And so what we're going to do is essentially go down there and work with the staff there to mm -hmm. iterate on the design of the product and on the function of the product, and then incorporate those improvements into the current prototype, mm -hmm. and then test, do it again, and test. Right. So how do you know when you when especially with hardware? How do you know when you start making the thing? When is it good enough to make? I think it's good enough. To, so I mean. Prior to investing a lot of money in um, actually turning this design prototype into a functional prototype, mm -hmm. we want, we really wanted to get an indication of what the willingness to pay for the U.S. market was, mm -hmm. um, and that's why we did that road trip initially. Mm -hmm. And then what we found was that you really can't assess willingness to pay without actually building the thing first. And so it was a little bit of a chicken and an egg mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think really um, the ideal the ideal scenario is you have a willingness to pay high enough to justify the investment. But what we found was that we just really needed to build. We just really needed to build a product, right? And so take the risk. Exactly. See, I mean, clearly people are interested. Though they wouldn't be doing the partnership, right? But take the risk and, and see what the products. Are. So, um, do you think it'll be a couple iterations before you can start? Like, ha, ha, I guess the next question is: ha, Let's say it works, and you have to engineer and tweak it a little bit. Uh, how do you know when to start mass producing? When do you make that investment? Yeah. So I think if we were able to finish this product development process in Maryland, gen do a pilot with 30 residents, generate some data, and then show that data to a number of very large providers in the United States, and mm -hmm. then have them sign pre-purchase orders for significant volumes of this of this smart patch, I think that would be an indication to us that we would want to start then filling filling those purchase orders, and we would probably need to go raise some more capital to actually commercialize the, right. the technology. So then uh, two questions. One is, your CTO or your, your tech team, yep. are they, are, do they lean towards hardware or do they lean towards software? So our CTO is actually, he spent some time at EventMobi, which, mm -hmm. which is a software-based startup in, mm -hmm. in, um, in Toronto. And so hardware development is relatively new to him. Mm -hmm. But we have a whole team of consultants that's supporting him yes. um, in sort of develop, developing the hardware. And so he's sort of wearing multiple multiple hats at this point. Well, that's what I was going to ask. That no one does everything. Exactly. You're either really good at hardware or you're good at software. It's very almost impossible to find somebody who does both very well. So that's how, that's why I was wondering, how do you have a startup? It's a hardware sort of startup, really, kind of, um, when your core, if your core competence is an immediate hardware and the answer is you bring people on the team who have that as a core competence. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then how do you, just curious, other curious question I have is now that you've gone through this first set of tests, a pilot and you're about to do a mega partnership pilot <laughs> uh, product par partnership you said your the vision of the company is to sort of provide tools for seniors uh, with this being the first product in that suite why why this one and not you know you know, oncology support or who knows sure. why this one? Sure. Yeah. So the vision of the company is to be the number one provider of technology to seniors. And why do we start with incontinence? Mm -hmm. I think it's because it's probably, 
you know, we started this company knowing that we wanted to um, positively impact how seniors were cared for in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And we asked caregivers, what are your biggest problems? And incontinence was at the top of their list. Really? And incontinence, like I said earlier, affects 80% of people in nursing homes and is literally like the most inefficient process right now in these homes. Yeah, yeah. And so I think, you know, all those all those things just sort of came together. And right. that's why we started here. And has that borne true while you've been... I mean, it's one thing that people say things and then you go there and they're like, actually, the food's terrible. That's really what's bothering me. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was at a conference yesterday where they were presenting all of these different innovations. They probably went through 50 different innovations for for nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And I had a conversation with some of the um, nursing home administrators after that and said, you know, where does our innovation fit in with these others? And, you know, if you could purchase one or the other, how would you make that decision? And they said, incontinence is, again, really at the top of our list of things we want to try and um, improve. And so, you know, to them, I think incontinence and the ability to improve the quality of care of residents through improving how incontinence is managed was really like super important to them. So the other question I have is like, you guys are not old men, right? (laughs) Um, so, you know, usually when you think of a tech startup, you think, you know, I mean, Google or something like that. Sure, sure. Uh, and if you really think about it, companies even like Uber, it's just a taxi dispatch service. At the end of the day, it's not very sexy. It's a taxi taxi dispatch service on your phone. Yep. Really. Um, how how how? What keeps you guys motivated? This is not a problem you're directly facing. So why this problem specifically? Yeah, I think one of the things that has been really important to us is to try and surround ourselves with the end user as much as possible Mm -hmm. and to try and understand the end user as much as possible, which is why we test our own product. We pee in these briefs. And um, and so I think just by doing that and by, you know, spending time in in these nursing homes, feeding seniors, you know, spending a lot of time with seniors, we really um, have just become very passionate about about the problem and see the ability for us to make an impact. That's and so that. that's 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 what drives all of us, right? That you think you can actually make a difference in these people's lives, exactly. And the way that they're being, the way that this process is being managed right now, is just not not something that we're happy with. Is it a space that's kind of being like ignored? Because oftentimes, the the criticism is, for, especially for seniors, you just kind of like you want to put them in a corner and just not sure. deal with it because it's stressful and hard. Yeah. Um, is, is, is there a lot of innovation happening in this space? Yeah, so over the past five years, the rate of innovation in the long-term care industry has really started to increase. And I think the reason for that is because right now in Canada, all of these nursing homes are literally at 100% capacity. Yes. And so there are two options, right? You build more homes mm-hmm. or you increase the efficiency of the existing homes. Right. And I think people are starting to realize that efficiency is the way to go and the way to fuel efficiency is to adopt innovation. Right. I mean, it's true in North America, the population is aging. Boomers are getting older. There's a lot of them. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden they're sort of technically savvy and they're, they kind of care. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot more of attention being paid. Cool. Exactly. So, uh, cool. Well, let us know how your next steps go if you're interested. Um, so first of all, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, censorship, if you want, if you're interested in keeping an eye on you guys, what's your website? Uh, it's www.censorship.com. And there's no E, right? There is an E. There is an E. So yes. censorship.com. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Oh, no, in the middle. Oh, right. S-E-N-S-A-S-U-R. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, uh, Thanks for coming on, and thanks for for making time for us before you're about to leave Canada for your, like, super long trip. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, This was Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy. Thanks for the working group for hosting us, and thanks for Nick Kuhn for producing the show. And we'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks.